0: Before we get started, we need a few moments to make sure that we are in fellowship. Some of you can pray for the timing of the Cotton Bowl game. Others of you can pray for other forms of miracles. But uh, we will have silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Got a thing falling off? Oh, my flag is in distress. Well, thank you. My uh, your' is falling off too. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that during this last week we had a tremendous opportunity to meet with other like-minded Bible teachers and listen to others who have studied your word uh, deeply and shared their insights and taught from the word and gave us great insight and greater understanding and issues related to not only the study of your word in terms of issues of eschatology, but also helping us to understand some of the issues that are going on in the church today in America today and that are impacting uh, seminaries impacting bible churches and other churches that that as we see these new ideas and heresies develop they trickle down from the seminary ivory tower and within a generation or two they are common beliefs in the pew and father we pray that we might be a bulwark of of truth we pray for Tommy and the others who guide and direct The pre-trib conference that that continues strong and in strong defense of your word thank you for this church and its faithfulness to your word and we pray that tonight as we study that you will help us to have a greater confidence in your word and we pray this in Christ's name amen okay I just want to start a little bit with a uh, kind of an overview of what went on at the pre-trib conference for those of you who may be new may not have heard about this the conference was started. This was the 24th conference. So the conference first conference, I believe, was in 1991. It came together because of a vision with Tim LaHaye and wanting to do something. Somebody recommended Tommy to him. Actually, the genesis of this, the very seminal thoughts on it, were in my living room uh, in Dallas or in Irving, Texas, back in in the late 80s. But Nothing. Nobody with any money or any backing or any prestige was around to give us any kind of a uh, a platform. So nothing happened until uh, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind book started to gain traction. And and, uh, Tim somehow was, uh, I think Tommy was telling me this last week, he went on a missions trip travel for a year visiting missionaries all over the world. And as he did that, he began to realize how little there was that was being taught on dispensationalism, uh, eschatology, or the pre-trib rapture. And if you think about it, if you study it, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. 27%. I think someone used the illustration at the conference that if you were to go to your doctor and somehow surgically remove 27% of his knowledge, you would not want to go to that doctor. If you were to pick up an instruction manual from the IRS on how to do your taxes, if 27% of the information was missing, you would not want that. If you went to an accountant and he was missing 27% of his education, then you would not want to go to that accountant, and yet we have churches today that ignore 27% of the Bible. And I did an analysis of eschatological passages some years ago, and about 18% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. And yet th- that means that uh, almost one out of every five verses in Scripture has to be ignored if you don't understand prophecy, if you don't understand eschatology. So this is this is incredibly important. God has dedicated a tremendous amount of his word to that, and so the founding of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group was to give scholars and those who were involved in a lot of popular ministries related to prophecy a platform for the exchange of idea, further in-depth Bible studies. And so much has come out of the the research that they have done. For example, in 19 up until 1991, there was a uh, uh, there was a character who was very much anti-pre-trip, still is, still bangs the same drum, and his name's Dave McPherson, and he's written a number of books, and he continues to pound the same lie. And that is that John Nelson Darby, who was the first to systematize dispensationalism and the first to clearly clearly articulate and define the doctrine of the rapture, got it from a young 16, 15, 16-year-old 16 girl who was having some sort of ecstatic experience and, uh, by the name of Margaret MacDonald. And one of the things that came out of that, and Sandy grabbed my book that I had up here I was going to refer to, but I don't need it, one of the things that came out in the, in the early 90s was they discovered an untranslated document that was in a library somewhere, I think, in um, at Berkeley or California that, that had a passage from a, a writer who went by the name of, of Pseudo-Ephraim because his pseudonym was Ephraim the Syrian, but Ephraim the Syrian was a little bit earlier. And this was about a 4th or 5th century writing where even though he had a short tribulation, he clearly had the rat, the church being raptured before the tribulation. How about that? Somebody, some 1400 years or are 1,300 years before Darby, actually understood that the church would not go through the time of wrath. Well, since then, we've been put in touch with a a guy who has spoken three or four times over the last four or five years at pre-trib by the name of William Watson, who teaches history at Colorado Christian University. And this guy... He was an n s a analyst in the early seventies at a berlin checkpoint i mean he's one of those guys who just drills down on on details, and he has spent numerous summers of his academic career he's approximately the same age I am, and he has spent numerous years going over and reading the sermons. Remember, they didn't have spell check. They didn't even have a, a standard spelling for in the 1500s and 1600s for English. And he has read thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons and theologies from the uh, English reformers, and that's his specialty is 16th and 17th century England. And he has discovered that there are there were hundreds and hundreds of Puritans and other British Presbyterians who were not only premillennial, but they were, they held to a pre tribulation rapture. And he has recently come out with a book that's been published by a new publishing house called Lampion Press, which was founded by my friend, my two friends, Wayne House. Some of you know Wayne. There were some, some people in the church have gone, went on that first Israel trip. And um, with, when we went with Wayne, Wayne House and Tim Demi, Tim was in the master's program at Dallas with me, and he spent his career as a chaplain in the Navy, and they kept sending him back to school. So he's accumulated like, I don't know, three doctorates and four master's degrees. I mean, he's just incredible. But they started this, this publishing house, so they published this inch-and-a-half-thick book called Dispensationalism Before Darby. Documenting all of these people. So that's just tremendous. And Bill was one of the speakers at the conference. In fact, he spoke yesterday morning on, uh, on the topic of the rise of philo-Semitism and premillennialism during the 17th and 18th century. And he's one of these guys who has just this bubbly personality and he's up there and he just, he's so entertaining. And this is really, can be, could be really dry material. But because of his personality and ability to communicate, he makes it a lot of fun. Philosemitism is the opposite of anti-Semitism. Philo is from philos, phileo, meaning to love. So the love of the Jewish people and how that developed in the 1600s and 1700s among English-speaking peoples. But a couple of papers were kind of downers. Jim Showers, who's the nephew of Reynolds Showers, some of you may recognize that name. If you ever read the magazine we get, Israel, My Glory, put out by Friends of Israel, Jim Showers is the director and president of Friends of Israel, and he is the editor of, of Israel, My Glory, his uncle, was a Dallas Seminary THM, THD from the late 60s, who's their sort of in-house theologian who writes a column for them all the time. Jim had a paper called The Eroding Evangelical Christian Support for Israel, The Causes and the Cure. And because he deals with a lot of uh, things that are going on on campuses, he really has his uh, a good understanding of the trends that are going on in the college age and the 20-something evangelical Christians and how they're drifting away and why they're drifting away from a support for Israel. And it had, and I sent that paper to all the deacons because his last six or eight pages dealt with a really good analysis of the trends that are going on among young people and some of the ways that they're not getting information the way most of us get our information or got our information. And if people aren't reading books, you can publish all the books in the world that you want to, but nobody's reading them. Nobody who's a 20-something is reading them. They're going to the internet, and so you have to go where the people are to communicate the truth. And we don't, nobody, and he, I really appreciate his paper because he says we don't know the answers, but we have to clearly understand the problems and the challenges before we try to come up with any any solutions a uh, professor from master seminary mike vlock uh, had a good good uh, presentation on the relationship of israel's belief to the kingdom of god which is exactly what i've been teaching over the last uh teaching you in bits and pieces all through our study in matthew um uh, greg harris gave a paper on uh did god fulfill every good promise a biblical understanding of Joshua twenty-one forty-three to 45. That's a passage a lot of covenant theologians and Ah Mills go to and say, see, Israel conquered the land. God promised Abraham he'd have the land, and they got it all according to Joshua 23. But, but he points out all the problems with that interpretation. That was, that, that was very, very good. Joel Rosenberg, who's a popular author, and has written a number of uh, spy thrillers as well as uh, n- uh, nonfiction books. Was our speaker at the banquet? And that was that was good on on uh, Monday night, and I thought he brought a, an excellent message and, and a reminder, and something that I've been concerned about for a while, and that is that we as supporters of Israel somehow come sometimes come across as we want to take the gospel to the jews and just you know to hell with the arabs and the muslims and and god loves the whole world every every single unbeliever and he sent christ to die for the muslims as well as as the, as the jews and and that there needs to be a corrective there and i've said since 911 the only the only weapon we have that's going to have any value in this war against radical Islam is the gospel. And that Christians need to be much more attuned to evangelism among Muslims. And one of the tensions we have, and I see this generationally, younger Christians in their twenties and thirties don't remember a lot of them remember they're pretty young. They were only in their early teens when nine eleven happened. They don't remember nine eleven. Some of us are old enough to remember Uh, World War II and what happened after World War II, we are much more concerned with national security than evangelizing our Muslim neighbors. But I feel like the younger generation, John Williamson is one here, uh, another uh, guy who's been one of my my CrossFit coaches, uh, Alex, and and, uh, he's involved with Muslim evangelism. But that is something that, that needs to be uh, strengthened and improved in among evangelicals because that is the ultimate hope. Is to com- God has brought millions of Muslims off the mission field to your next door mission field, and we need to be much more aware of that. That was something that um, Joel was emphasizing. Uh, Mike Stallard, who's the president of, of uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, spoken at Chafer Conference before, uh, did a critique of a book on amillennial theology, which was very helpful. And Wayne House did a uh, presented a paper on the hermeneutics of historic premillennialism, which I appreciated because I was missing one little characteristic of historic premill that I didn't didn't quite have a handle on and that clarified. You know, sometimes there's just one little thing, when you get it, you got it. Premillennialism dispensational premillennialism believes that the kingdom is a Jewish based, Israel centered, Jerusalem centered kingdom. Historic premillennialism rejects dispensationalism. They're not dispensational. They believe Christ comes back before the millennium, but it's a Christian millennium. It's not Jewish centers, it's church centered that's that 's the difference I thought that that was very helpful. Andy Woods did a good paper on the doctrine of the millennial kingdom in the Old Testament, understanding what is taught because a lot of Ail say the only passage that Christ, that Mills can go to is revelation twenty one through eleven and so he walked us through all the Old Testament promises on uh, on a future kingdom and then uh, Andrew Robinson, who's a pastor in England. Uh, gave a uh, really good historic paper on the rise of uh, 19th century British cr- Christian Restorationism. A lot of that I've taught to you in the past, and he is the pastor of a young man who's probably not quite as young now as when we first met him, Dan. Um, Paul Wilkinson, who wrote his PhD on Darby and uh, Zionism, and has spoken several times at Pre-Trib, and he does a fantastic job and he has gone over to uh, Israel several times in the last few years to this, the dark side. We believe in Christian Zionism, right? They believe in uh, Christian Palestinianism. That's the opposite. Jesus was a Palestinian. They have these murals they paint over there. Jesus is wrapped in the little black and white checkered keffiyeh that the Palestinians wear. And he's, uh, you know, wrapped in robes of the black, green, and white of the flag and all of these things. And there are a lot of Christians who are being influenced today uh, to, to uh, dump Israel and to love on the Palestinians The problem is that their theology is a form of liberation theology. It is Palestinian liberation theology, which is a first cousin and kissing cousin to black liberation theology, which is nothing more than a Marxism wrapped up in a few Bible verses. And so this is a a huge danger. And I was just talking with with Bruce about it uh, just before class. That I thought that that of the three or four talks that that Paul's given on this (coughs) that are not they're not encouraging. Okay, you're not gonna you 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 finish listening to him and you realize that there there's a lot of really negative trends going on in the world today. But we need to know what they are. But this was served as a good introduction, and it was uh, very he's always very good to listen to and upbeat. (coughs) So. We're going to have that video and show it one night when I'm gone to Kiev. One one of the Tuesday or Thursday nights while I'm gone, we'll show that. Uh, you need to be aware of it. You need to have this information. You need to understand what's going on. and And the references he makes to American pastors, big names, people you hear about all the time, when you hear who they are then you'll have a greater understanding of some of the problems that are going on in this country. But you need to pay attention to those things, so we'll be showing that while I'm gone to Kiev. And then Tommy and Paul, Tommy Ice and Paul Wilkinson, will be going together to the Christ at the Checkpoint conference they have every year at the Bethlehem Bible College. Of course, they invited me to come along. Robbie, please, can't you come with us? I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I can't run around the country all the time with you guys. <coughs> so, Tommy, that's the week before the Chafer Conference. So the first speaker at the Chafer Conference this year is going to be Tommy Ice, and he's going to be fresh off the battlefield and give us an update on what is going on with Christian pal- Palestinianism and the Sabil group and and all these people over there who are fighting against Israel. And, and you come back here and you realize the major players, the people, people who influence politicians, people who, pastors who influence presidents and other politicians, that, Christ, that the Bible doesn't teach a support for Israel. The Bible doesn't teach Christian Zionism, and we have to, we have to know the truth. So that's just a quick run-through on the conference in summary. And now I want to get back to what we've been studying in 1 Peter. I started last week looking at the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. And once again, this is where the battle is, we thought. I was communicating today with another um, a colleague from uh, from the pre-trib conference who wasn't there this w- this week. By the name of uh, George Gunn, Dr. Gunn teaches at Shasta Bible College. He always presents very well-researched papers. His specialty is in the area of hermeneutics and and, uh, and also in the area of prophecy. And I'm thinking about having him come a year from this march for the Chafer Conference and and he made the comment he had not read the paper I referenced last week. At the end of the last class, remember, I read excerpts from Bob Wilkins' article from this Grace in Focus uh, journal. George hadn't read it yet, and I gave him a little brief rundown. He said, I thought we had this settled at the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy. But like I said last time, we've given that away in terms of hermeneutics. So every generation or so... We have to refight these battles, just like every generation has to win their freedom on the field of battle, so every generation has to fight the battle for the Bible all over again. So we need to be well prepared. Now, last time at the end, I talked about several things that were in this article, and you can go back and listen to it. One comment somebody did make, uh, Grace in Focus is the publication of Great the Grace Evangelical Society. Just a little caveat, I don't always caveat people, sometimes I get a little frustrated. If I mention what somebody says from the pulpit, it doesn't mean I agree with anything that they say other than what I quoted them as saying. It's like the prayer list. We have a few people on the prayer list that we need to pray for because of the ministry that they have, but they may have a doctrinal aberration here or there or some other minor flaw or for whatever reason where I'm not giving them a one hundred percent validation but if i put xyz ministry on the prayer list they're doing a good job but that doesn't mean that everything they say is something i would agree with or that you would agree with and so we always have to have a measure of discernment ges as i pointed out before was a good organization founded by bob wilkins zane hodges but about 10 or 12 years ago, they started focusing on a minor aspect of some of some of their Bob's and Zane's theology, which had to do with the fact that if you don't have an assurance of your salvation, if you don't understand that you have eternal security when you believe in Jesus, then you didn't have saving faith. That's, and that caused a split. It split a lot of churches. It split George Meisinger's church. It split Chafer Seminary. It split the whole organization apart over a, a what I consider to be an erroneous interpretation, but they do good work in many other areas and This particular article by Bob Wilkin is very, very good and quite a warning to the churches about the danger of um, of the shift away from biblical inerrancy by interpreting the Bible. Differently, And I pointed out last time that they will come up, instead of looking at Genesis 1 through 3 as biblical history, they look at it as poetry. And if it's poetry, then it do, it's not communicating literal history. I have problems with that. But in the sidebar on one of the pages, and if you go to their website and download the PDF, you'll see it, there's a reference to a survey that was done and the website it comes from is a, it's, this isn't a good website, okay? It's called religioustolerance.org. Okay? They're intolerant of you and I. Okay? They're intolerant of you and me. Let me correct myself. I am tired of this. Let me get on a rabbit trail. I am so tired of people who can't understand that I is the nominative and me is the dative. And when you say something, something verb to me, just think about it. If it's you and I, and then you're going to make that the direct object, just drop out the other person. And would you say they did that to I? He invited Jim and I. I hear that on by news people. Everybody's doing it now. I've heard it 20 times this week. You say, John invited you and me. If you drop out you and say, John invited me, then you'll get it. Now you'll know the right way to say it. And then no matter how many other people are in, are in there as the as a direct object, then you'll still get it right. Okay? it just grates on me. And the fact that I said that a minute ago bothers me because we pick this up from hearing illiterate people talk on the news. End of rant. All right, so the religious tolerance people do not like us. They are intolerant of us. But this is a survey they have on their website called, and it says in 1987, just think about this, this was 28 years ago. We've gotten better, haven't we? We're more conservative, right? We're more biblical? No, just the opposite. So if it was this bad 28 years ago, how bad do you think it is today? And according to this survey, 10,000 clergy were asked if they believe the Scriptures are the inspired and inerrant Word of God in faith, history, and secular matters. 95% of Episcopalians said no. The other day someone mentioned to me about somebody who was going to a Bible study in an Episcopal church. I said, just count on it, Episcopal's wrong. Of course, they weren't going to an Episcopal-based Bible study, so that was better. But 95% of Episcopalian clergy do not believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. 87% of Methodists do not believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. 82% of Presbyterians do not believe the, inerrant, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. 77% of American Lutherans and 67% of American Baptists. Do not believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And that was 28 years ago. I would bet that the 95% of Episcopals is pretty close to 99% today, and those others have probably bumped up at least 5, 6, or 8%. That's where we are today. And you saw last time that a lot of evangelicals have problems. Because they, they, they try to use the empiricism of modern science and modern understanding as their presuppositional base for truth. And then when the Bible comes up with a young earth age, it doesn't fit the old earth claims of modern science. So, well, modern science must be right. So we have to figure out some other way to understand Genesis 1 through 11. And, and, Um, On and on it goes. Jonah swallowed by a large fish. That just is a tough one to handle. Even though there are empirical examples, there are testimonies from whalers in the 19th century of of, uh, whalers who've fallen off their ship and they've gone into the drink and been swallowed uh, by a fish or a whale. I don't think... uh, Whales, from what I understand, have really narrow... Uh, throats. And so I don't think a a fish, I mean, a whale could swallow a man, but some other large fish could. And they've eventually caught the fish, cut the fish open, and they've come out alive. So the story of Jonah is not beyond reason. It's just beyond the experience or the reason of small-minded intellectuals. Okay. So we have to study this. And since we're in First Peter one, we see all of this terminology in First Peter 110 through twelve that speaks of and takes us to the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired. How does the fact that they have to study the Bible, what they've been what's been revealed to them and search it carefully, how does that relate to inspiration? They prophesied. What exactly is that? How did that happen? They were searching what the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. To them it was revealed, in verse 12, by the Holy Spirit. So the claim of the Bible is that this is not any other book, but that this was revealed to us via God the Holy Spirit. It is a a book of divine origin, not human origin, and therefore we are to understand it as being radically different from any other kind of book. Now, there are other religious books that make claims of divine origin, but there are radical distinctions between them. Read the Bible through about ten times in one year so you really get a good understanding of the, of the rhythm and the beat and the mood and the tone and the language of the Bible. And then read the Book of Mormon. Or read the Bhagavad Gita. Or read the Quran. Take, drink a lot of coffee before you start reading the Quran. I tried to read it a few years ago and, and it starts off with the longest chapters and works to the shortest. It's arranged by the length of chapter. It's not chronological. You start with the longest chapter. By the time I got through chapter one, I had had three naps. It is hard to read and it is very, very confusing. And it's, these books, like the Book of Mormon and the Quran, not all the others I mentioned, are written by one person at one time I mean uh, Muhammad was illiterate he but he allegedly memorized it, and then later it was written down but But the Bible is a book that is written over a period of over over two thousand years, maybe twenty five hundred years by at least forty different writers who came from three different continents and had uh, a lot of different uh, careers and jobs and training and background. You have Abraham who was a merchant and a farmer, a herdsman. You have Amos, who was a uh, uh, basically a sheep breeder and a fig picker, and then you have uh, Peter and James and John and their fishermen, and you have Moses, who was trained to rule over the greatest empire of the time, and they have a breadth of different educations and backgrounds. Yet they write on some of the most controversial topics that that have ever been discussed in all of human history. And even if we took 60 people from this church and we all wrote on you know, some key doctrines together, we would disagree. But these guys don't disagree. That's because they, that there's a primary author who is God the Holy Spirit, who is breathing the word of God out Through them. And that is the meaning of inspiration. It's really outspiration. God outspires the word, outbreathes the word through the authors of scripture. Now last time I gave you the lengthy, uh, the lengthy definition here. I think this is from our doctrinal statement that inspiration means that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, if you didn't get all of that written down, don't worry. We're going to break it down uh, section by section so that we can really truly understand what that means. Some of the verses I put up here are secondary verses for inspiration. Uh, John 10.35, Matthew 5.18, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is a primary one. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21 is a primary one. Those those two, Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, second Peter one twenty-one, those are the key ones, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, and a host of others. So let's look at the let's look at these primary ones tonight. I put up 15 through 17 because we have to understand a little bit about the context here. We have frequently heard all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for uh, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Okay. But the verse that precedes that is equally significant. Paul is writing to Timothy. Remember, what do we do in Bible study? Who wrote it? Who are they writing it to? When did they write it? What's the context? This is 2 Timothy. It's the last epistle that Paul writes before he dies. He's writing it to his young protege, Timothy, his last instructions uh, to Timothy. And he's reminding Timothy of his uh, spiritual heritage. And he says to Timothy that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings. Now, Timothy was a child before the Lord, Well, maybe about the time the Lord Jesus Christ died, but he was a child who grew up in a home where his father, grandfather are not mentioned. He's brought up probably in a single-parent home with his mother and his grandmother who are believers. And they have taught him, the Old Testament, the Torah, they don't have any New Testament yet. They they didn't even know the gospel. They just knew the Old Testament and the Old Testament gospel that Messiah would come and through him all would be justified, and they believed in the messianic promise of the Old Testament. And they got that from the sep- sacred writings, and what Paul tells us here is from childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith so he could be saved and he was saved as an old testament saint uh, through the reading of the old testament so the sacred writings are the focal point of the chapter that would be old testament scripture the 39 books in the english old testament 22 books 24 books depending on how you count it in the hebrew scriptures they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. And then Paul says all Scripture. Now, when he says all Scripture at this point, he is primarily talking about the Old Testament. <coughs> about two-thirds of the New Testament has been written at this time, maybe a little bit more. But primarily what he has in mind, or what he's been talking about in context, is the Old Testament writings. It wouldn't exclude New Testament writings, but that's contextually his primary focus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that's this Greek word, theopneustos, which means God breathed from theos, the first word meaning God, and neustos from the word for breath. God breathes it out. This isn't inspiration. Like you may talk about, um, uh, George Friedrich Handel being inspired when he wrote the Messiah. You may, you may speak of Michelangelo being inspired as he painted the Sistine Chapel. But that's not using the word in the same way that the scriptures use this word this is the unique distinct ministry of god breathing his word out of his mind into the mind of the writers of scriptures and then they exhaled it through writing writing the scripture so god is the source of the scripture since god is the source of the scripture it's profitable for teaching for correcting us (coughs) excuse me, for reproof, for correcting us, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that means any believer, that any believer may be complete. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. It means that you don't need anything else other than Scripture to be a complete, mature believer. It doesn't matter what kind of emotional problems you've had in your background. It doesn't matter what horrible things happened in your background. It doesn't matter uh, the fact that you may have been some sort of a, a criminal. You may indeed have been someone who was abusive. You may have a background where you were abused. All of that is forgiven and cleansed by the grace of God, and we can overcome all of that through the scriptures alone, the Bible says. You don't need 10-step, 12-step, 30-step, 50-step programs, and a host of pills. Now, there are some things that you may need that are definitely and specifically uh, biological that need to be addressed that way. But most of this stuff that people go to today, they have a they have an emotional hangnail, and they want to take five drugs for it. And the Scripture says, no, what you need is the Word of God and to trust God and to do what the Word of God says to do. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy or simple or overnight. A lot of people misunderstand that. Spiritual growth still takes time because you have to learn the Word of God and practice it. And then at the end it says, because the, word, the script, all Scripture is breathed out by God... You can be thoroughly equipped, and the word there in the Greek is, is an intensified use of the word that's used over in Ephesians four eleven and 12 that says that, that the, the gift of, 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 of apostle and prophet and evangelist and pastor-teacher are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, and the word that's used there for the word equip is an intensified form here because it's the Word of God that the uh, gifted ones in the church, the gifted leaders of the church, are using to, to train people. It's the Word of God that can do that, uh, and we have to trust the Word of God. So the word that we have is theopneustos, which describes the ministry of God the Holy Spirit specifically. Now, the first part of our definition said that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. The point that we're making is it's the province of God the Father to oversee as the architect and planner and visionary of human history to, to oversee everything. It is the role of the second person of the Trinity, who was the uh, general construction manager, who oversaw the, the creation, and who is the redeemer who will provide the redemptive work of salvation, but it's the role of God the Holy Spirit to reveal the father to the, to his creation, and so that falls within the purview of his area of responsibility. We'll look at some of these passages later, but God the Holy Spirit is emphasized in verses like second samuel twenty three two to three mark twelve thirty six acts one sixteen uh Acts uh twenty-eight twenty five, John fourteen twenty-six, first Thessalonians four two, 2 Thessalonians three 6, uh three twelve and three fourteen. God the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals Scripture to us. Now here's a central passage for this, and that's Second Peter one twenty and twenty-one. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now that seems pretty clear in the English, doesn't it? Right? You read that, you got a clear grasp of it? Maybe not. Okay, this is a great verse. What does it mean when he starts off saying, knowing this first? What does that mean? knowing this first. It's probably a causal participle coming off the previous verse because you, you know this first or something of that nature, but that word for first is really significant. It's the word protos, the word protos, and that means something that is first, something that can be prominent, or it can be something that is foundational. What I believe this is emphasizing, and I happen to be I've just worked through this this afternoon when I was talking to George Gunn and I get shared with him my insight here and he said, he said, I never thought about that, but you're exactly right. Protoss refers to the presupposition. This is the presuppositional foundation of all knowledge. Is the Word of God, the, the, as the inerrant, infallible Word of God revealed by God the Holy Spirit. This isn't the second thing you should know or the third thing you should know. This is the foundational thing you should know because all other knowledge is built upon this. This is foundational. And I read to you a statement last week from um, a guy who was in the same class as I was at Dallas Seminary who's gone on and done quite a bit of excellent Greek work but he's done some stuff that I wouldn't agree with. Uh, Dan Wallace, and uh, in a statement here uh, quoted by Bob Wilkin in his article. I read this last week where Wallace said, If our starting point is embracing propositional truths about the nature of Scripture rather than personally embracing Jesus Christ as our Lord and King, We'll be on that slippery slope, and we'll take a lot of folks down with us. Now, here's the problem. He has characterized our position as saying, if our starting point is embracing propositional truths about the nature of Scripture, our starting point is embracing Scripture. He's misrepresented it there. And that's the only way we can know Jesus, is from the Scripture, because not one person that I've ever met has had a personal encounter with Jesus. I've heard people say that. They met Jesus. I always love it when somebody says, I heard this yesterday, well, I found Jesus. I didn't know he was lost. First thing that pops into my mind, I didn't know he was lost. I met Jesus. Really? I thought he was just localized at the right hand of the Father during the church age. I didn't know he was walking around. Obviously, what they really mean is they met him through Scripture, because that's the only way you can meet Jesus. That's the only way we can have a personal relationship with Jesus is through the propositional truths of Scripture, and yet we live in a fuzzy thinking world today where people think that somehow I can have a relationship with God or with Jesus without it being mediated through the Word of God. And the, and, and what that, once you start buying into that kind of fuzzy headed thinking, then it's real easy for somebody to trick you into thinking that you don't really need to believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Now this verse begins, with some interesting verbiage. I'll get there in just a second. Uh, we've seen the Holy Spirit as the author of Scripture, recognizing that the way He does it is through these propositions, these statements of Scripture. Propositions, a technical philosophical term, meaning basically what you learned in seventh grade is an indicative sentence. A statement about reality. The, the, it's snowing outside. Now that may be true or false, and you can verify it or falsify it. That means it's a pro- pro- it's a proposition. If I say go to the store, you can't verify it or falsify it, which means it's not a proposition. It's an imperative. It's a command. If I say what time is it, is that a true statement or a false statement? It's neither. It's a question. Only an indicative statement, a statement about fact, can be either proved true or false. That's a proposition in, in, in philosophy, and that's what we mean, and that's what's meant when we read about the Scripture as being propositional revelation. It can be demonstrated to be true or false. Okay, so the Word of God is revealed to us as propositional revelation, normal sentences that can be, uh, that can be objectively evaluated and validated. Now, when we look at this verse, it's difficult a little bit in the Greek. First thing we learn about, I'm going to give you a couple of points before we go into it, is that God the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, has a responsibility for overseeing the communication and inscripturation of divine revelation. That's clear from these passages. They're holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But the second thing is we have to understand something about the process of inspiration in scripturation, which I had to put into my Microsoft dictionary because they kept telling me it was misspelled just because they're ignorant of the word. And inerrancy is foundational. That's the first, that's that first word, knowing this first. That's the priority. Now, this word, as I pointed out last a minute ago in the previous slide, protos. In Greek logic, going back to classical Greek, in Greek logic this described the primary foundational unprovable propositions on which all philosophy or all thinking was built. You get down to primary assumptions which can't be evaluated or validated. They're just taken by faith. In the Old Testament, it was a word that would refer to something that preceded everything else. In some cases, it would refer to that which was preeminent. It was it was not in a being described in a succession or in order. It's like Jesus is the prototokos. The, that protos is the beginning. He is the first of God's creation, but he's not first in order. He's the preeminent one. So that's one way in which protos can be taken. In the New Testament, the word has the same general range of meaning as it does in the Old Testament. It can be first in time, first in a spatial sense, or first in a succession or order, or first in designating rank or office. But with reference to knowledge, it still goes back to that classical Greek sense that this is our presupposition. This is the first, if you're gonna learn anything, whatever you learn is built upon some foundation. It may be empiricism, it may be rationalism, it may be mysticism or a combination of those three, but for it to be true, it has to be built on revelation, and that revelation must be true. If it's a false revelation like the Quran, or like the Book of Mormon, or like the Bhagavad Gita, then it's going to have elements of truth in it, but it's not going to be true truth. It's not going to be absolute truth. Now, when we look at this, the literal translation is what I've given you here because it's a little convoluted in the Greek. Literally, it reads every prophecy of Scripture as opposed to no prophecy of Scripture. It has to do with how we have to convert certain Greek phrases into the negative to understand what they meant. Every prophecy of Scripture does not come about from its own explanation or interpretation. So in order for that to make sense in English, we have to Rewrite it as no prophecy of Scripture comes about. From, it's not so, it, it does, from its own or his own. I, I, I corrected that. I had its initially, but it should be corrected to his own explanation. In other words, the prophet is the one who's working, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation because prophecy. Never came by the will of man, so the prophet, if you go back to verse verse nineteen, it talks about the prophet, and so it 's of the prophet 's interpretation, so it should be understood and translated that that you could do it the way I did it down here, but no prophecy of scripture is of its own. And it should be his own because that goes back to the prophet. The trouble you have grammatically here is that the word, the word "idios," which is where we get our word "idiot," okay, the word "idios" there, which is one's own, is a feminine singular. But so is scripture, and so is prophecy. But if you go back uh, to First uh, Peter one, uh, I mean Second Peter one twenty. I'll read to you in just a second. 119. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this verse that no prophecy, it's that prophecy, that's a feminine word. No prophecy is of his own, that is the prophet's own interpretation. The point is that he doesn't generate it. Okay, the... um, a lot of discussion on this in various commentaries, but they all seem to agree that no prophecy of Scripture derives from the prophet's own interpretation. He doesn't generate it. The writer's aim was to, that is, Peter's aim was to deny that the prophets themselves were the source from which their message originated. The prophecies came from God; they were not inventions of the prophets themselves. So that's expanded on in the next verse, verse twenty-one. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Now, what's interesting here is the word in the Greek for translate. Excuse me, translated came here, and translated were moved here is excuse me, is the same Greek word. It's pharaoh. And by translating it with such different language, you miss the point. Uh, Peter is saying, "...for pro- no prophecy was carried or was brought by the will of man." He's repeating more clearly what he just said in the previous verse. "...but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit." Now let me show you a verse that uses this same word that gives us a little bit of an insight as to what it means. This is in Acts 27 when Paul's writing on the ship that is going to be shipwrecked it says, "When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Syrtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven." So that's word Pharaoh. They are driven by the wind. See, the wind now, because they struck the sails, is going to drive them wherever they want to go, wherever the wind is going to take them, not where they want to go. They have nothing to say about it. That's the idea, is that God the Holy Spirit is so driving them, directing them, supervising them, that they're going to write what God wants them to write, but He's not going to override their educational background. Their individual personality, their uh, training, or any of those things. Let me just give you some interesting examples of some scriptures that talk about this. Second Samuel twenty-three two and three. The Spirit, David says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. Notice, not, not only does this tell us it's God, the Holy Spirit but it's emphasizing that it's his word singular. The inspiration extends to the very individual words that are used. It's not that the ideas of Scripture are inspired, it's the very words themselves are breathed out by God. He goes on to say, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. It is God who speaks. It is the righteous, just, holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who speaks. Mark twelve thirty six. Jesus said, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. So here he's attributing what, um, what David said in Psalm 110 to the Holy Spirit. In Acts 116. Peter says, "Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke, by the mouth of David. that's the dual authorship of Scripture, the human author and the divine author." Now here are some interesting passages which I'll close with. First Timothy 5:18 reads, "For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." That's a quotation. From Deuteronomy 25:4, which I have on the slide as well, which reads, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it trades out the grain." Now, what did he call that? He called it scripture. Okay. The point is that that the scripture that the New Testament clearly identifies what is scripture, but it connects not only an Old Testament passage here, Deuteronomy 25:4, but it connects it as equally authoritative with a statement from Matthew 10.10 that the laborer is worthy of his wages. So you look down here, Matthew 10.10 says, For a worker is worthy of his food. So he changed the wording a little bit. He could do that because God the Holy Spirit was the author. But he's combining an Old Testament passage from the Torah with a New Testament passage as being equally authoritative and equally from God. 1 Corinthians two. Uh, Ten, Paul writes, God has revealed them to us through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, the Holy Spirit teaches us through these words. And in 1 Corinthians 14.37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, pa- Paul says, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So he see- he's saying that what he is writing has equal authority to the Torah, the commandments of God. So what we've seen in this first part of the definition is that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. And we'll stop there. Next time I'll talk a little bit more about the human writers of Scripture. But this is the point. What does the Scripture say about itself? It claims again and again and again to be the very Word of God, not just that the ideas are inspired or the thoughts are inspired, but this precise verbiage. And we'll see next time this this will extend down to plurals and singulars, present tenses versus uh, past tenses. Those are equally significant. Father, thank you that we can have a study like this to look at your word and to come to understand that this is a supernatural book, that it was not revealed that men could just uh, add their own ideas to it, but it is has been revealed by you. It has been protected in its revealing by God the Holy Spirit from error, and it has been uh, protected in its transmission down through the ages so that we can be assured of its accuracy in the original languages. Though there may be a few things that that got changed, they affect nothing in terms of content or theology or doctrine, but simply tertiary things such as word order uh, or spelling, things of that nature. Thank you that we can trust your word because then we know that whatever we face in life The solution is found in your word, and it is your word and your grace and your power that is sufficient to enable us in every circumstance in life. And we pray that we might have the strength of faith to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.